Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Saturday, February 12th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. States are dropping mask mandates, but the CDC says it's too soon. There is no one golden standard data point that's going to tell us when it is appropriate to lift mask mandates. And bipartisanship breaks out on Capitol Hill. They're not doing Build Back Better. They're not changing the filibuster. So you look at the legislative traffic and there's not a lot out there. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Masks are coming off across the country, at least masks worn because of mandates at state or local levels. Just this week, several states led by Democrats began winding down some COVID-related protocols. California will allow its indoor mask mandate to expire next week. New York is ending a vaccine or mask requirement for businesses. Rhode Island, Oregon, Nevada, Delaware, Colorado and others are all lifting rules for masking. New Jersey's governor says next month students can stop wearing masks at school. But as governors and local leaders start putting an end to those requirements, the CDC is not recommending the same, at least not yet. The White House insists the president will continue to follow scientific data. What is the data telling us now, nearly two years into the pandemic? Is it time for the CDC to shift strategies? We start there this week with Dr. Syra Madad, the senior director of the Special Pathogens Program at NYC Health Plus Hospitals. You know, many of the governors that are, you know, uh, lifting these mask mandates are the same governors that have done well in terms of trying to, you know, apply these pandemic mitigation measures in a way that could be used for the collective good. And so my point is that, you know, they they certainly are in a moment trying to figure out what is best for their state. So it's not as if they're saying, you know, let's just lift every lift, uh, lift all these mask mandates and, you know, let the kind of the virus spread. That's that's not the thinking. So they are trying to be mindful because we are at a pivotal moment in this pandemic. And the reason why I say we're in a pivotal moment is we're in a transition period where we're looking at removing these, you know, these pan- these pandemic mitigation measures like masking and now relying on individuals to look at their own risk tolerance, their own risk profile and thinking, you know, should I continue to mask? You know, should I uh, go to these indoor events? And so as we move forward, and as you've mentioned, there is no one golden standard data point that's going to tell us when it is appropriate to lift mask mandates. So it's not just relying on community transmission levels. And as you've alluded to, CDC's, you know, website where you look at the county level tracker, over 99% of counties in the United States are still in high levels of community transmission. But if you look at hospitalization rates, they certainly are declining. Ideally, you know, when we look at a metric, we want you know, hospitalization rates to be 10 cases per 100,000. Uh, no state really meets that, that criteria. When we look at vaccination rates, that certainly varies from state to state as well. So 
there is no one particular metric that's going to tell us when it's appropriate to lift mask mandates. Instead, we should look at all these different epidemiological factors, along with access-based factors. So this includes, you know, how many people have access to testing, how many people have obviously access to vaccinations, even though they're widely available, there's still barriers in place. So my thinking is, certainly, we should start evaluating when it is the appropriate time to lift mask mandates. And that's going to vary from city to city. And we need to empower our local mayors and uh, school superintendents to see what works best for their community as they look at lifting these types of measures. One thing that I have heard from policymakers, from elected officials, is that the CDC has not been real clear on what should trigger a change in policy, that the CDC is sort of just kept everything in place and hasn't provided any guidance as far as, you know, what what certain metric needs to be reached. And, and so these governors and, and local leaders are kind of left to, to the, their own experts without a lot of guidance fr- from the top down. Is that how you see it? Should the CDC be more clear in letting states, letting counties, letting cities know what the environment ought to look like before taking a, a new step? Oh, absolutely. I think we need to have a general framework in place that these are the different types of combination of metrics uh, and benchmarks that we want uh, different localities to to reach in order for them to start lifting mask mandates and you know other types of uh, mitigation measures. And that doesn't exist. In fact, the only measure right now that as we look at CDC's website uh, is that county level community transmission rate. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is quite flawed because it's looking at, you know, case positivity, up, um, and it's also looking at obviously number of cases over a seven day average, but it's not factoring in the rapid at home test that is just so widely available. Millions of people are doing that test every day, but that's not being factored into their analysis. Um, so their uh, method or their metric certainly is flawed. And, and as we are hearing, CDC is looking at revising some of their metrics and, and thinking, should we go more with hospitalization? Uh, and as well as a combination of community transmission levels. So I do think that it would be very beneficial to have a federal level framework that localities can, you know, essentially uh, look at as they make their local decisions. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist. And as you've mentioned, now there's a hodgepodge of different states kind of figuring out for their for themselves what works best for them. And, and that that's not something that we, we should be uh, we should be in in this in this, you know, kind of two years plus into this pandemic. It's the CDC being too cautious. Yeah, I think I mean it's good to be cautious, but at the same time, we need to adapt quickly because this virus certainly, obviously, uh, continues to evolve. And I think the CDC's approach is always kind of waiting for the the data, waiting for better, uh, you know, scientific information before changing any guidance. And oftentimes, that delay costs you know, a lot a lot of uh, issues and confusion, uh, as we're seeing right now. So their framework should have been updated, but it's not. I and mean, it's very unfortunate. If mask mandates sort of in the general public stay in place, uh, is there data to, to support at least lifting mask mandates for schools that still have those in place? Well, I think when we started having the discussion of lifting mask mandates in, in schools, I think that there are certain counties that so, you know, probably meet the, the the kind of the benchmark. And what I mean, meet the benchmark, if you have high vaccination rates in a particular county and you know your cases are declining, I think that's that's a moment where you want to 
think, you know, maybe it's appropriate to start lifting these these uh, mass requirements. But if you're in an area with very low vaccination rates, and we do have still many counties that have low vaccination rates, and you're seeing cases are declining, but they're still very high, you may want to wait, you know, uh, a few a few more weeks. And unfortunately, that's kind of going back to the same point of everybody's kind of following their own framework. And it's, you know, really unfortunate that we know masking works. We know that risk reduction in this pandemic, um, you know, is really important. So it's not just about masking, it's about ventilation. It's also about making sure that we are able to prevent, you know, cases from becoming clusters and we're able to isolate and quarantine. So all these things work together. And we need to make sure if we are peeling back one measure, for example, masking, that schools have good ventilation systems in place. And we know the American Rescue Plan, you know, has been offering billions of dollars to do that. Um, and we want to make sure schools are, are looking into that. I think that's one of the frustrations that you've heard from parents is all of this money has been spent to upgrade yeah. the, the schools. Why are kids still wearing masks? And, you know, given the data out there that would suggest that children aren't nearly as impacted by the effects of COVID as older Americans. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we want to make sure that as we look at the data, we certainly know, you know, two years into this pandemic, Children are affected, but not to the extent as adults. We have safe and effective vaccines for those over the age of five. Unfortunately, vaccination rates, in, you know, in in uh, teens and children has have plateaued. So relying on just increasing vaccination rates and then lifting mask mandates, that's a fantasy. That's we're not going to get there, unfortunately. And that's where we want to make sure that we have better ventilation and filtration systems in schools, um, even if they have low vaccination rates. And I think that would give you kind of a better you know, uh, as a parent, feeling a little bit more comfortable that, hey, even though mask uh, mandates are removed, I a, have an option of still masking my child if my child is vulnerable and, and I, you know, have a lower risk tolerance. But we know other measures in schools are in place, not just for COVID, right? We need to also expand it out to other infectious diseases. And we've been so hyper-focused on COVID and rightfully so, because that's been, you know, the, the issue. We also want to look at it from the mental health standpoint of children and what they're facing and the myriad other, you know, uh, uh, health challenges that they continue to face. We need to have a holistic picture as we make these decisions. Are there studies that show the mental health effects of, of kids in classrooms wearing these masks for a prolonged period of time? So, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal information. As we know, anecdotal doesn't mean facts. Um, so as we look at masking, we know masking is beneficial. We know that it reduces transmission rates. As we look at, you know, what are the risks associated with masking? There's no, you know, medical related risks associated with masking, but there's more social risk, right? So you're not able to see faces of, of you know, of teachers and, and, and peers and students. And that certainly has an effect on children. It has a mental health effect on children because they're constantly being masked, uh, you know, in indoor environments for a prolonged period of time, and they're not able to look at many of the visual cues. So there's so many other kind of other impacts. In fact, if we look at the mental health challenge that's plaguing our, our children, I mean, it is significant enough that CDC certainly has published papers that show emergency department visits have been on the rise uh, in children, unfortunately, uh, with mental health uh, challenges and psychological issues. And so we want to make sure we are making, as I mentioned, decisions on a whole, looking at these data points. Do you still have confidence that, that what we're getting from the CDC is the uh, the best uh, data available at the time, sort of up to the minute um, recommendations are, are acceptable or, or the right call? Well, I think the data in and of itself is not in real time. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think the information that we are seeing, the data points, uh, there are lagging by at least two weeks. So we certainly need to change our data reporting, collection, analyzing, and make sure we're shifting it more to real time. And that's just not happening. And so 
we need to make sure that as we look at these seven and 14 day averages, that's what we're basing, you know, our decisions on not day to day, because, you know, the numbers are not really in uh, in real time. I do think that the CDC needs to do a much better job in helping track these case numbers, hospitalizations, and so many other metrics in a much more orderly fashion where we can get this information in real time. And that's unfortunately just not happening right now. I'll finish with this. What is your advice to governors, to local leaders who are ready to lift these types of mask mandates? You know, we've seen it in New York. We've seen it uh, in Virginia. We've seen it in places that, as you point out, have had these protocols in place now for two years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first is that the decision certainly has to be made at the local level. I would want to make sure that these mayors and these school superintendents are looking at, you know, the community transmission levels. They are looking at hospitalizations and hospital capacity in their particular area. And they're also encouraging as we're shifting from a collective you know, everybody's masking to now individual level, they're, they're giving the option to parents and children that if you want to continue masking, you can still do that. And we know one-way masking is still, you know, highly effective and that we're making sure that we're telling them that if you want to, you know, if you uh, need testing, testing is available and have these resources available because we know that in this pandemic, uh, you know, people of color has been, people of color have been disproportionately affected. So we need to make sure that we're looking at it from the lens of equity as well. So we need to give them those tools and resources and they exist, right? We're, we're in a very different time period. We just need to make sure we're much more methodical in using this and letting people know, giving clear message um, that right now we're lifting masks, you know, you know, mask mandates, and we have these tools for you. And that if, uh, you know, the metrics and data change, that we may reimpose it. So there is a clear understanding that these are off ramps, off ramps, but we may, we may have to reimplement depending on the situation. We're in a ship, you know, a, a shape shifting uh, situation and things will continue to change moving forward. Well, it's been a long time that uh, we've been talking about this. I appreciate your, your insight as always, uh, Dr. Madad. We'll, we'll continue to, to catch up as um, these decisions are made and, and we want to sort of get the science uh, and data behind these decisions. So I thank you as always. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Bipartisanship broke out on Capitol Hill this week. Really? Consider this. Just this week, Congress, with overwhelming bipartisan support, passed one of the most significant changes in employment law in decades. Legislation ending companies from forcing victims of sexual harassment and assault into arbitration. You're going to have a right today that you did not have yesterday. You're going to have a chance to be heard differently That's South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, who for years worked on a legislative package with New York Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand. Allowing them to have their day in court, a basic constitutional right. Also this week, the long-stalled Postal Service reform bill passed the House 342 to 92. The bill is intended to save the Postal Service billions of dollars. Top Democrats and Republicans on the House and Senate Appropriations Committees have also reached a deal, they say, on a long-term spending bill to fund government through September. And unlikely political bedfellows are coming together on new legislation that would ban members of Congress and potentially their immediate families from buying and selling individual stocks. 
This is all about restoring some trust and confidence in an institution that has one of the lowest, lowest approval ratings in America. I think Congress is, is below root canals now. Montana Republican Steve Daines introducing a bill with Massachusetts Democrat Elizabeth Warren. No one in this country should ever have to wonder what motivates a lawmaker. The Warren Daines proposal is one of several out there in the House. Virginia Democrat Abigail Spanberger has teamed up with Texas Republican Chip Roy on a bill requiring lawmakers to put stocks and other investments in the blind trust. Other members of Congress are floating similar proposals. The idea even has the attention of congressional leaders like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who once was cool to the idea. So that's where we will start this week with my colleague on Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram, and discuss what's behind the sudden bipartisan spirit taking hold. Well, it's amazing how quickly this issue has kind of bubbled up. You know, just in December, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she was against, you know, changing the trading rules of stocks for for members of Congress. Now she wants something that's universal across Mm -hmm. government. At her press conference uh, in the past couple of days, she talked in particular about changing the rules for the judiciary. They're not under any, uh, you know, rules at all about what they can trade. And and so it's an issue of transparency. Uh, You have had... Uh, some members come forth who say, oh, we're against this. You know, for you know, we are human beings. We are citizens. There should be some things that we are allowed to do in the private sector. And one of them is Tommy Tuberville, Republican senator from Alabama. He's been pretty outspoken about this. There are some Democrats as well. But, you know, you might remember, you know, there have been occasions where members have talked about putting their stocks in a blind trust. There have been problems with that. I remember there was a, an issue about uh, 16, 17 years ago with Bill Frist, who was the Senate Majority Leader, Republican from Tennessee, and was tinkering with running for president in 2008. And, you know, there have been some suggestions that other senators and other members have not been on the up and up with their stock trading, even though they say it's in a blind trust. Um, it is kind of in the bo- in the eye of the beholder here about, uh, you, you know, what you should be able to do. You know, I, I think that probably the reason this has caught fire right now is, is some members think that it's an issue of transparency. Mm-hmm. And the more transparent and open they are being about what they do. And if you're not actually trading stocks and getting rich off of something, uh, you know, th- th- that just puts you in a better light, frankly. Well, let's talk about what the requirements are now, because right now they're bound by what's called the Stock Act, right, which requires um, lawmakers and I think their their close family to essentially disclose every stock transaction they make, yes. right? And not so, and also not adhere to or not use quote unquote insider information that you. Well, but get that's on already illegal. I mean, insider right. trading is still illegal, right? And, and right. that's bound but, by members right, of Congress. Right, but there was a distinction. There's a distinction here, Jared. That's interesting. They were saying that members of Congress, you know, are privy to, and and staff, frankly, are privy to all sorts of information that the rest of the world is not. And some of that is true, but some of that is them doing their job. You know, I talk about. <laughs> Oh, there's going to be a bill that's going to come up next week or that bill is never going to happen or, you know, there's going to be that hearing, you know, and you and I, because we cover this, we have, quote, insider information, close quote, which really isn't insider information. And then there's a hearing on that and then say a stock changes and it goes up. But, you know, anybody who was paying attention, frankly, could have that. So I don't know how you can enforce that. Where's that line that they draw? to, uh, you know, cut off, quote, insider trading. That's why there was always criticism of that regulation. The other question that I've presented to, to those behind this uh, push is, is it fair to include 
spouses. They're not elected officials. What is the thinking behind that? Well, you know, spouses talk. And if you have members of Congress going home and they say, "Okay, you know, I'm not trading the stock, but my family is. And it's the same bank account and it's the same home and it's the same boat and the same car and everything else. You know, that's a problem now. But again, that's the slippery slope. How far down does this go? And, Jared, you see all the time that members of Congress face some criticism up here for something that a spouse did, a wife, a husband, mm-hmm. uh, a child, and not, you know, not an adult child, somebody adult you know, child, who's yeah. in business or something. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, offspring. You see that all the time. And sometimes that has merit and sometimes it doesn't. But just because they have that last name, you know, or something, they're like, oh, there you go. You know, there was an issue some years ago. I remember a, a, a former colleague of mine, uh, someplace else I worked, uh, his wife had given some money to a presidential campaign. He is a journalist. She is not. It wasn't that much money. It came up in a report, but it's a joint bank account. And he gave the money. And then this appeared in a public report. And some people raised some hackles about this. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't yeah. give the money, but it's the perception that he gave the money, even though he didn't because he's supposed to be independent. And it's the same thing for members of Congress. Is there an argument? Because I've heard this. I think uh, Senator Tuberville made, made the point that you know, he's worried that this is going to be a disincentive for people to, to get involved in politics. Well, you know, you already give up a lot to get into politics. You give up a lot of privacy, uh, you know, a lot of family time, you know, freedom, frankly, just to do what you want. You know, people are pretty strict about what you can do. There are other rules up here. And some might say that's the cost of doing business. If you're going to be in this game, it is rough and tumble. And we expect our elected officials to be above board. You know, maybe this is just another example of that. That's been the criticism for a long time about how much, you know, members have to raise in terms of money, uh, you know, how little the pay is for the hours that they work. And I know people talk and joke all the time, oh, they don't really work that hard. But I got news for you. They actually do here on Capitol Hill, whether you like it or not. And that's Democrats and Republicans, frankly. Um, So, yes, uh, I mean, we don't know that. That's an interesting theory. But that has always been uh, the problem with putting some of these provisions in because you want some of the best people to run for office. And if that includes people who are active in trading stocks, then maybe we should have them. But then again, does that create other problems or better yet, bigger problems? Well, I know Senator Warren, who's behind one of the the uh, proposals with uh, Steve Daines, a Republican senator from uh, Montana, has talked about maybe a, a way to sort of have a a phase in, a phase out kind of way to to eliminate some of those concerns. I, I'll finish with this, Chad. Uh, you, you started this conversation by saying this has built momentum awfully quickly. Uh, how quickly then do we maybe see? action on on and as i said there are a few proposals out there so how quickly does something sort of come together and, and we start to see votes on this in the house and the senate i wouldn't rule out sometime in the spring frankly um, wow they have to get through a supreme court nomination uh that'll be in the spring in the senate uh they have to fund the government mm-hmm. uh so they're going to do another interim bill here in the senate probably next week and then also then then the bigger bill which seems to be worked out and we'll see if that that uh, dog hunts, actually, and that's sometime in early March. And they're not doing Build Back Better. They're not changing the filibuster, uh, although, you know, versions of the Build Back Better might come back uh, as we get deeper into the year, late spring, yeah. summertime. Nothing on voting fall. rights. Right, voting rights. So you look at the legislative traffic, and there's not a lot out there. There's a lot of attention on this. You know, it's kind of like the issue that gurgled up as well over the past couple of weeks is uh, the unionization issue for mm-hmm. House staff. 
Now, again, I thought it was interesting that they they thought there might even be a vote in the past week on the, on the resolution, not saying that, you know, staffers were going to unionize right away. Uh, that seems like that needs some time to work out. But again, that could probably come in the next couple of months, too. It's just interesting. You know, nothing exists in a vacuum, Jared. And if you don't have, you know, you're not every day build back better. Every, you know, we were on the air every day with that and infrastructure for months. That's all we talked about. <laughs> and pretty soon, all we will be talking about is the Supreme Court nominee in the confirmation process, especially if it skids off the rails or there's a problem, Alec mm-hmm. Kavanaugh or something in the nominee's background comes out or, or, or it's too controversial or something like that. So guess what? These two issues bubbled up to the surface. And that's why we're talking about stock trading. And the unionization, collective bargaining for staff here on Capitol Hill. Well, we'll see what we're talking about uh, next week. Chad, appreciate the time, as always, my friend. Pleasure. And who day? Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown. From Washington, inflation hits a 40-year high. What steps can the Fed take to bring down prices at grocery stores and gas stations? And Democrats may have won the redistricting battle, but is it enough to turn fortunes for control of the U.S. House? Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.